All right. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today we have a, a special treat. We have a returning uh, guest, someone who's been on the show before, John Loken. Hey, John. Hi there, Dale. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank and you very much. No, no problem. And I'm uh, really excited about today's topic. Obviously, we're just a couple weeks after Easter and that sort of thing. And um, last time John was on the show, he, he mentioned he wanted to come on and talk about his uh, theory about the resurrection, how to explain it in his book. Um, the Shroud was the resurrection, as you can see there. So that's sort of the plan for today. Um, but just before we get into uh, some of the topics, I want to turn it straight over to you. For, for anyone who didn't see the previous show with you, do you, you want to kind of introduce us as to who you are and a bit about your background there? Yes, thank you very much, Dale. Uh, first of all, I should tell you, uh, thanks for having me back on. You were a gracious host last time, back in November 2022. And uh, you were very brave to invite me, I must say. Uh, I rarely get such invitations. Uh, my position is rather unusual, of course. Um, and I must congratulate you on your knowledge of the Shroud and many other things, too. Uh, I wasn't very aware of your blog before. Uh, uh, I think it's been going, what, two or three years, something like that? Uh, yeah, twenty. I think 2019 is when I started it. So. Right. And there are so many, so many things online anymore about the Shroud. So, so anyways, congratulations on that. Um, uh, some general information about myself, perhaps. Uh, uh, let's see, I'm not a science-y kind of guy. <laughs> I studied the humanities in college, got two degrees, history and literature. Um, I've been an agnostic since uh, about the age of 30, back in the 1980s. So that's my general position. Uh, I have remained agnostic for some 35 years. Uh, started studying the Turin Shroud seriously about 20 years ago. And I had a, I quickly came to the realization, in my opinion, that it was authentic. It was the burial shroud, actually, of Jesus in the first century. And then I had a sudden uh, insight uh, as to the meaning of it and wound up writing a book about it called The Shroud Was the Resurrection. It came out in 2006. Uh, the idea being that the image of Jesus formed naturally in the tomb and it was ghostly it was serene it was inexplicable and it inspired his followers to believe in his miraculous resurrection um, with the additional help of an empty tomb and we can get into that later on so the two factors the empty tomb missing body and the image on the shroud were the origin of the resurrection belief um, unfortunately, the book's been ignored by almost everyone. Uh, uh, both sides of the issue have, have ignored it. The, uh, the uh, supernaturalists, except for the great Dale Glover, have ignored it. And also the liberal New Testament scholars have ignored it as well. Uh, of course, they are those who disbelieve in religious relics in general and they disbelieve in the empty tomb story, and they uh, are they're not. Even, I was just going to say, they're even skeptical of that these days. Uh, like Bart Ehrman's changed his mind on the empty tomb, but yeah, sorry to interrupt. So. Exactly, exactly. 
So I find myself in the middle, uh, and it's kind of a lonely little position to be in, a rather chilly feeling at times. Uh, um, it's a tiny little club, uh, very solitary. Maybe Thomas DeWesselo also is in that group. Uh, he published a book in 2012 called The Sign, uh, proposing the same basic theory with some different details. Uh, but otherwise, not much interest. Um, it was a low low uh, small time production so uh, it's not very well known out there um, and also i participated in a uh, shroud turin shroud forum for a number of years on and off uh, so uh today uh i sort of requested you uh that i could talk a little bit about the last program make some corrections and comments and so on and then move on to my book and to Thomas de Wesselo's book and try to compare them for the sake of your viewers. So um, first though, I might just make some general remarks about religion, very brief and uh, not terribly organized, but I, I am an ag agnostic, but I'm not anti-religion mm -hmm. um, except for its extreme forms. Uh, and I'm not anti-spirituality. I realize it's a part of human nature. Um, it will always be with us. Life is chaotic and confusing. It is sometimes cold and cruel. And so people have a need for hope and reassurance. And they, they find religion, uh, they find that in religion. Um, also, if they don't find it in religion, in the belief in God or gods or the divine, they tend, people, human beings tend to gravitate toward an anti-religious extreme, which is very troubling and for example you find the absolutizing of the self in recent decades uh, in our modern society um, today's rampant identity politics I'm, I'm not a fan of that at all uh, and in the 20th century of course we we saw the ideology of communism which was an atheist ideology and it's tens of millions of victims, murder victims. So I realized the enormous danger of, of being anti-religious. Uh, so me, I'm more of a centrist. And by the way, many agnostics are rather centrist themselves. Um, it's a misconception that to be agnostic is to be uh, liberal or leftist automatically. I do have a few liberal and leftist uh, uh, beliefs, but in general, I'm more of a centrist and most uh, or many, many agnostics are in that center group. There are even quite a number of uh, conservative, politically conservative people who are agnostics. So mm. now moving on, one problem with the child field, as you know very well, Dale, is the over eagerness of shroud authenticity supporters and also shroud authenticity skeptics. Uh, mm. They tend to see either the shroud everywhere <laughs> or they see it nowhere at all. And uh, I've gotten carried away myself at times with uh, small issues and questions. Uh, um, so we all have to guard against those extremes. One recent case. Go ahead. Oh, no, no problem. I, I think if you're if you're going where uh, I was uh, thinking, you're right. I, I just kind of wanted to interject and, and ask you because a lot of, you know, I'm doing a show tomorrow about the Shroud in the Bible and are there mentions of the Shroud in the Bible? So I, I don't know if that's where you were. Is that where you were about to go or? 
Uh, it was actually. I was thinking in particular right now for the moment, uh, just spending a minute or two on the question of uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians. Uh, it's gotten a lot of interest in recent years. Um, uh, verse 3.1 in the Galatians has uh, uh, made many people think that it's an actual allusion to the Shroud of Turin. Um, and it seems to be a growing movement within the Shroud field. Uh, I actually studied it back, uh, starting back about three or four years ago. And uh, in my view, it's not, it is not an allusion to the Shroud. Um, what it does, 3.1, for those who don't know it, uh, it says, I believe, uh, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was presented crucified. Now, that does sound remarkably like the Shroud of Turin. However, it's only seven little words in Greek. And uh, what we don't have there is any reference to a cloth or to a body or to a face. Uh, and also the phrase Jesus Christ is very, very common in Paul in his letters. It's a typical Pauline expression. And also uh, crucified, that's very important for Paul. It actually occurs three or four other times in the letter of Galatians itself. So it's it's very common in the, the uh, his epistle or letter to the Romans. It's the same way. He very frequently, I think 30 times, refers to Jesus Christ with the combination of crucified or dead or dying, that sort of thing. Uh, and then the eyes, eyes, uh, it's not necessarily physically meant, uh, literally meant, okay? The Bible apparently contains some 478 references or uses of the word eyes, and many of them are figurative. They're not literal references, so there's that. Um, and the Greek phrase in Paul's uh, epistle does not say before your own eyes or before your very eyes. Some English translations render it that way, but that's actually not correct. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, the people who believe that Paul's Galatians 3.1 refers to the Turin Shroud, they tend to emphasize that translation, uh, but it's not in the Greek. So, And then there are to wrap it up, there are major geographical objections to the idea that Paul or Peter or any early Christian leader uh, carried the shroud around him, around with him uh, through Asia Minor, Anatolia, and went to visit the, <clears throat> the uh, fledgling Christian communities in, uh, in Gal Galatia, Galatia. And uh, if you think about it, he would have been risking storms and high seas and bandits and robbers and and thieves and even curious animals all of whom could have uh, damaged destroyed stolen the shroud so in my opinion at least uh, uh, that is not a reference to the turin shroud um moving on now uh you gave permission for me to uh, discuss a few viewer comments that were written after our video on uh, November 3rd. Uh, yeah. and, and just so the audience knows, so basically in that November show, I was bringing on John as a, a, 
as a non-religious agnostic or, or just agnostic, whatever you prefer. Um, but he, as he's, as you can tell from what he said already, he is pro shroud in terms of the historical question of it being authentic to Jesus. Uh, so that's what that show is about. So yeah, John kind of take it away. I know you got some comments from some in the audience that you kind of wanted to respond to as well as yes. mm -hmm. to yourself. So, yeah, just briefly, maybe five, six, seven minutes. Um, um, let's see. Some of them were very nice and, and were welcome, even if they weren't nice. <laughs> uh, so I thank those people for those. Maybe some of those people are watching right now. Um, others were a little problematic. Uh, and I'd suggest to people in the future, please try to write correctly. Uh, there was a lot of misspelling and a lot of mm, grammar mistakes. Uh, punctuation was a little weird. And so please think before you write. Otherwise, it gets rather messy and confusing. Um, and also your points will go lost if, if I cannot understand them. Just keep that in mind in general. Also, elsewhere on the Internet, it's it's too easy. to. I'll, I'll just throw in here. So, so John, yeah, he is a stickler. He scolded me as well on the uh, at Shroud Science Group about my grammar and stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> don't be offended. He's, he's just a prop. He wants to see the proper uh, grammar and stuff. Yeah, like that. and awesome. I, I appreciate your understanding, Dale. Uh, well, of course. That's yeah. great. Thanks very much. So let's see here. Uh, Paul, uh, a writer or a, a viewer named Paul, um, was thinking that I did not believe in the empty tomb story. Actually, I do believe in the empty tomb story. Uh, the question for me is only why it was empty, why the tomb was empty. I favor a natural explanation. Happens to be a body theft, uh, specifically with the Jerusalem authorities uh, engineering it. Uh, chapter one of my book, a long one focuses on that question, and we'll discuss it uh, later on in more detail. Uh, James uh, was another viewer. I frankly, I didn't understand what he was writing. Uh, again, problem of communication. So, James, if you're out there, <laughs> try harder. Good luck. Uh, John F. Uh, he wrote about Italian scientists being authorities, uh, and I would say, well. Yes, and maybe not so much. Uh, they are excellent in, in some ways, many ways, but Italians can also be somewhat biased. Uh, Catholicism in Italy is very, very strong, and it affects even scientific judgments. So, uh, But in general, I agree with John, uh, that John F., uh, that uh, more testing needs to be done on the shroud um, or not even on the shroud, but more experiments without the shroud need need to be done. So uh, Rich B, he has a, a serious spelling problem, I believe. Um, in content, uh, uh, again, I would say that far too few experiments have been conducted, uh, imaging experiments, uh, trying to replicate the natural um, image formation. Also, Rich claimed uh, at one point that he said, of course, the collapsed cloth is not going to be mentioned in a 2,000-year-old document. Now, that's an illogical claim to me. I would say almost the opposite. I would say that if the followers of Jesus found the cloth lying flat on the stone burial bench in the tomb, uh, there's a very good chance, uh, probability even, that they would have mentioned it in the Gospels. 
uh, because, of course, that would be an indication that the body had disappeared from underneath the, the cloth, the shroud. Uh, so I find it rather odd uh, that uh, they don't mention it, okay? The two Gospels, Luke and John, all they say is the, uh, the linens, the burial linens were lying there. That's all they say. And, uh, and that's very important. Now, over the centuries, uh, Christian theologians interpreting the, the Gospels have been trying to read into it a, a flat or undisturbed or collapsed condition. So uh, that was my uh, point I was trying to make. Some early Christian theologians actually described the linens as a cocoon. The body had disappeared and left the shape of the body. <laughs> and of course, that's going way beyond what the actual Gospels say. So that was my point. Another one, uh, Anthony uh, wrote a very interesting comment. There was no distortion of the image, and therefore that the cloth was flat when uh, the image formed. And he wondered how that could possibly have happened naturally. Um, wouldn't the drape of the cloth have distorted the image? It's a very good point. Uh, and I've puzzled over that myself, too. Uh, the image seems to be so perfect that one wonders how uh, a natural formation could have uh, created. You do affirm, just for the audience, you do affirm that the vertical alignment of the body images type feature, right? Yes, uh, I was just about to get into that. You oh, sorry. anticipated my thought. Yeah, very good. We're on the same way, same wavelength. Uh, awesome. So I was uh, about to make two points. Uh, apparently, uh, it's not the image is not so completely undistorted. Uh, there are small distortions in the image. Uh, if you go on shroud.com, there are a number of uh, articles that have been written on that uh, question. Um, also, several. Uh, Christian shroud scientists over the decades have proposed the idea, and Dale, you must have heard of it too, that uh, there were objects uh, laying beside the body or laid beside the body, which propped up, supported the top sheet of the shroud. Uh, for example, small sacks of spices, uh, and they needed only have been maybe uh, what 10 inches high or so uh, in order to have created a relatively flat plane over uh, uh, with the cloth lying over the body. And of course, in the Gospel of John, people have pointed out that there are very clear references to a lot of spices, a uh, hundred weight, I believe it's called. So um, that's another point in favor of some sort of flattening, but a natural natural flattening of the shroud cloth um, before and during the image formation process. So, uh, unfortunately, it's all a scientific question and I really can't go any further. I wish I could, but um, almost finished with this section now. Uh, Jason uh, made a, a point that he, he too liked the writings of uh, Alan Watts uh, and uh, I thank him for that. I'm glad he appreciated uh, Alan Watts's uh, book. Uh, uh, I remember reading uh, Behold the Spirit um, 40, 40 years ago or so. Uh, and then let's see, moving on, um, a few. Oops. All right. Uh, I guess he kicked himself out. Hopefully he'll 
rejoin in a second. Um, all right. So what do we just while he's trying to rejoin? So we got the God talk is saying that is indeed still kind of an open question for me, how the linen was laid out to receive the radiation. Uh, yeah. And obviously with John, he, he so he's a he's an agnostic. He doesn't believe in the radiation hypothesis and that sort of stuff. So he he's kind of like Barry Schwartz. He's using those spice bundles or spice packs. Um, oh, OK. So John's back. Hey, John, you're back. Uh, can't we can't hear you. Is it better? better? Yep, you're oh, back. Very good. awesome. All right, cool. So yeah, pick up. Uh, you were, I think you were just finishing off your response to the comments and then on yeah. the last show and you also had, uh, you wanted to respond to some comments that you yourself made in that exactly. show. Yeah, well, let's plunge into those right now. Uh, I made a few comments that were not entirely accurate. Um, also too many ums and ahs, apologies for that. Uh, the Jospus imprint, uh, I mentioned that as being a cloth which was imprinted with the uh, image of a hand and arm and back of a, of a hospital patient uh, in England. And I said it was in 1970s, actually 1981. And for people who are interested, they can check that out on uh, shroud.com. Jospis is uh, J-O-S-P-I-C-E. Uh, also, I mispronounced uh, a couple of words, few words, uh, you know, French, how it is. Uh, uh, the Maillard reaction, I should have said, I called it Maillard, I'm sorry, um, for the image formation. Uh, <clears throat> I've studied a lot of different languages over the years, so I get them confused sometimes. Um, anyways, uh, forgive me there. I mentioned too the uh, so-called pipette method for uh, applying the blood onto the shroud in the medieval artisan scenario. Uh, the skeptics uh, of authenticity uh, have mentioned this pipette as a way uh, they clearly did it to avoid the problem of the lack, the complete lack of brush strokes on the shroud, both in the body image and also the blood uh, stains. There are no brush strokes. So how do you get around that? Well, one proposal was the uh, pipette method, which is a straw, a little straw. Uh, Dale, when I mentioned that, you... Uh, uh, and I, I did not believe that uh, was possible, uh, too cumbersome and awkward. Uh, and when I mentioned it, you said that you had not heard of that, and you th you thought that it, maybe it was an old, uh, an old theory which had been refuted. And I just wanted to clarify that it was actually uh, proposed just two years ago uh, online, uh, just two years ago in a shroud forum by a well-known authenticity skeptic. So. Uh, it's not an old one, and it's uh, not really been uh, completely refuted, although I did contradict it at that time, and I think uh, sufficiently so because I haven't heard anything more about that pipette method. So uh, there's that. Uh, let's see. And also, I don't believe there's any record of a pipette having been used in medieval art, so that's another factor to consider. Uh Last November, I mentioned to the empty tomb angels in all four Gospels and my long-held belief that they are a garbled or disguised form of the Turin Shroud. Um, 
in my 2006 book, I mentioned the angels seven or eight times um, at various points, and at least a few other people have also held that belief. Um, in 2012, Thomas DeWesselow, in his book, he spends a few pages on that subject. Uh, I believe pages 241 and 42, if people have that book handy, he goes into more detail about it. Um, and interestingly, I just recently I dug up in my cavernous archives, I dug up my old uh, chapter that never made it into my book on the tomb angels. So it's uh, a memento of uh, some 17 or 18 years ago, but there it is, my chapter, and it's uh, uh, about 10 or 12 pages long. So I was very keen on it. Um, if you are, are willing and feel free to say no, but if you want, you can send that to me and I can post that chapter up on my blog for people if you want. But that's okay. that's a thought. Yeah, it still needs a bit of polish. I noticed there are a lot of words crossed out and others added, so I need to uh, okay. polish it. But thank you very much, Dale. Thanks. No worries. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> it's now basically a memento of, of days of yore that are no more. Um, let's see. The human blood question whether the blood on the shroud is human or uh, undetermined uh, is very important. We talked about that in November. Uh, I'm of the mind uh, that it's definitely real blood, um, but others have said that, uh, and recently too, in 2022, even I believe I, I read it somewhere in 2023, someone saying that it's it's actually human blood or that it's um, uh, human type AB blood. Mm. So uh, I was going from the information provided by Kelly Kurse, a well-known and excellent researcher in questions of the Shroud's blood. And I still believe he is correct. Um, but these others in the field, uh, they have other ideas. It would be really nice if there were more consensus on that issue. Uh, maybe it can be achieved someday, and maybe in the next conference that issue could be focused on. Or you yourself, Dale, you might like to do a, a special program on that blood issue and just try to achieve some uh, consensus on it. So there's that. Absolutely. Yeah, I've got, it's it's coming up. I've got a panel, future panel review show where we're going to be addressing that for sure. But yeah. Very, very nice. Great to hear. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, also, uh, uh, the question of the nakedness of Jesus on the Turin Shroud. Uh, last time we spoke, Dave, uh, Dale, um, that question arose as uh, possible evidence for authenticity. Uh, and you mentioned at the time that a certain Shroud authenticity skeptic, uh, no name maybe, uh, is He's the <laughs> no. <laughs> It's okay. He doesn't like it. <laughs> Uh, let's see. He said that Jesus was very often shown naked in medieval paintings. Uh, so last November, I didn't know much about that subject. I uh, couldn't respond very well. Um, since then, I've looked into it, and it turns out that the claim is, uh, <clears throat> well, a little bit of a fib, shall we say. Uh, it's a little exaggerated. Um, uh, that skeptic, he, he confuses the issue by bringing in uh, Adam and Eve, in medieval painting, okay? And uh, they are actually irrelevant, okay? Adam and Eve were, of course, lowly sinners, and they're just not comparable to 
Jesus Christ, the God man. So it's really irrelevant. Uh, and besides that, the paintings of Adam and Eve are mostly, almost all of them, rather small ones. They're not uh, life-size by any means. Hmm. And then uh, the skeptic, he refers to the uh, Jesus in his nativity scenes, which again, it's a far-fetched uh, uh, comparison. I mean, really, he's, he's just a baby there. So, you know, there's yeah. nothing at all risque about it. Uh, let's see. He then went on to claim that uh, Jesus is almost always uh, shown naked in his baptism scenes uh, at the River Jordan with John the Baptist. Uh, that's actually not true. Anyone could go on Google Images and look, uh, just look under Jesus baptism medieval, and you'll find 100, maybe 200 uh, images of uh, medieval paintings showing Jesus, and at least half of the time he is wearing a loincloth or even a flowing robe, okay? And besides those, uh, another, what, 20, 30 percent of the time he's shown, or maybe even 40, 30, 40 percent, he's shown <clears throat> um, in uh, submerged in water. He's waist deep and the water is blue or is green, so it's very discreet depiction. Um, maybe a forearm will be placed in front. Uh, and then there are maybe, I would admit, maybe 5% of the medieval paintings uh, of his baptism do show him uh, technically naked, but he has no privates, okay? They're just sort of, you know, uh, airbrushed out. They're not there. And besides that, they're very small paintings in general. They're tiny. Jesus is 10 inches high, 12 inches. What's that? 20, 25 centimeters. Up. So. Yeah. Now, finally, before we get to my book, uh, I'm not sure how oh, we're doing all right. Uh, yeah. And, and before before you get into your book, I'll let you finish your thought. But we do have two audience questions related to what you're saying about the shroud. So I, do you mind if I just ask you those before we get to your book? Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. cool. Okay. All right. Cool. So this one is about uh, where you got cut off, where you're talking about the flattening of the cloth. So this is from the God talk. Um, he was saying, look, it, it is indeed, even for supernaturalists, uh, it's an open question. You know, how is the linen laid out um, in terms to, of receiving the radiation, you know, whether it was stretched out or somewhat involved in, in enveloping, enveloping the body or the corpse. Um, so yeah, I guess I just wanted to get your take on, on that. Like, even if you do take a supernaturalist perspective, couldn't there be some kind of flattening or, or something like that and still involved? Or... Uh, yes. You know, I really, uh, when I referred to it a few minutes ago, that's about the limit of my uh, ability to speak on that flattening. Okay. Um, okay. I've, I've read it discussed in the Shroud forums in the past, but <clears throat> not being a scientist, I really can't contribute anything. Uh, all I know is that uh, quite a number of uh, scientists on these shroud forums have mentioned the possibility of uh, objects of some sort next to the body uh, propping up the top sheet. Okay, so uh, and again, the the uh, image is not uh, apparently not completely perfect. Uh, there are signs of, of wrinkles and distortions in it. So um, 
it's hard to say that it was completely supernatural. If it were a supernatural image, um, I would think personally that it would be perfect. It would be 100% perfect. Um, so I, I can't really uh, answer that question. It's a very good one. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I can't go any, any further into it. In a way, uh, it's funny, but the... <clears throat> The Turin Shroud, it's a mystery, of course. It's a, a great, great mystery, maybe the greatest mystery of all history. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it, in fact, it's such a mystery that I think sometimes it doesn't even exist. I, don't, I think it, it doesn't even exist because it cannot possibly be a medieval creation. It cannot possibly be, in my mind, and other agnostics it cannot possibly be supernatural and it also does not seem to be for certain people a natural formation so you've got these three main and really three only three uh, options and they, they all seem to fail in one regard or, or another so so gotcha. sort of jokingly i would say the turin shroud does not exist <laughs> but <laughs> The problem is, of course, it does exist. So we've got got to figure out uh, which of those uh, options, choices are maybe uh, the least, the least problematic. Okay, you have another question? Yep, this is the last one, and then I'll let you continue. But so this one is from the Vulture, and he says, "I have a question. Does does the fact that the shroud is not easily explained, as you were just kind of saying, uh, as either a forgery or a natural phenomenon, strike you?" as uh as interesting you know if um if it were man-made wouldn't we ex wouldn't it be explained by now we, we would expect to have an explanation i think is what he's getting at so well, what's your i think i understand uh let's see this writer seems to be very skeptical of the medieval shroud creation is that how you read it dave Dale? Uh, yeah he so he's a he's a christian and he, he's kind of saying look if, if it wasn't supernaturally created we should have the explanation whatever it is we should know how it was made that's what i think he's asking. well i see i see now the natural phenomenon yeah i see that too uh you would think so but uh, again although it's been investigated for uh, quite a while now especially since uh, you know the 1970s um there remains a lot to be done a lot to be done uh there have been no new uh experiments done on the shroud since 1978 that's a long time ago 45 years ago and uh, uh, of course it's being held back by the catholic church uh, for their own reasons um, but that could well uh, open up a whole new area of inquiry and results too we could know more about the natural phenomenon uh, possible natural phenomenon of the shroud image um, i think there haven't been very many experiments done at all trying to replicate it as a, a natural phenomenon a couple of names come to mind uh nitowski i believe she uh conducted some experience experiments in caves in jerusalem uh, many years ago <clears throat> also uh rodante comes to mind uh, italian researcher uh, he did the same thing in caves in sicily uh, but apart from those two i can't really think of many others uh, and uh, i really wish that some more people would uh, sponsor and and conduct uh, experiments trying to replicate a natural formation 
I hope that answers the yep. that person's question. Now. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, I think that's that covers it for now. So yeah, I want to turn it over to you to for the most important part here. Here's where we're getting to your your book, which provides your theory on, on the resurrection and sure. how the shroud uh, ties into that. So take it away for the next uh, half an hour to 40 minutes or so. Sure, absolutely. All right. Uh, uh, my book came out in 2006. And then uh, <clears throat> um, De Wesselow's book, The Sign, it came out in 2012. Both of our books suggest that the image of Jesus on the shroud formed naturally. Uh, and we both proposed that the image then inspired the resurrection belief in uh, of Jesus' followers. So our major points are very much in alignment. So there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, but there are some differences too. Uh, so I thought I might summarize them for your viewers, uh, uh, compare them, uh, mostly minor, but nevertheless uh, interesting. Um, I think some of your viewers are familiar with uh, De Wesselo's book uh, because it was much better known and may not be familiar with mine. And so the comparison may help them in that regard too. So my book, it's very short, uh, 176 pages. I only have uh, a few illustrations in it, about 10 altogether, um, black and white, all of them. Uh, it was a lone wolf product. Uh, I had almost no help in, uh, in writing it uh, and uh, did have two or three trusty proofreaders very grateful for them, uh, to them, but um, they were mainly acquaintances. It was sort of a rushed project. It was all done in a uh, space of a year, a little bit over a year. Uh, I don't, uh, did not rehash the whole history of the shroud or, or uh, reputed history of it. Uh, I figured that had been done often enough before in so many other books. I also did not go into the scientific results uh, <clears throat> or claims, uh, forensic uh, issues. Uh, so I spend basically just a paragraph or two in the preface discussing scientific uh, uh, claims or, or facts. Uh, and I'm sorry to say, but some of them are mistaken. I was using, at the time, I was using books uh, written in the 80s and 90s. And some of the claims made in those books were uh, a little exaggerated. And so uh, uh, don't <laughs> don't trust me entirely on on those points. But again, that's a couple of paragraphs. I focus almost entirely on the first Easter weekend, um, Good Friday, Saturday, and Easter Sunday, uh, and what happened what happened in Jerusalem and around the tomb during those three days. So. Uh, I do accept the tomb as being empty, uh, but as mentioned before, I believe strongly that it was due to a body theft organized by the Jerusalem authorities in order to prevent any uh, uh, tomb veneration, uh, uh, to prevent the tomb becoming a shrine for Jesus in the future, and also to prevent any violent demonstration at the site. So. I think the best, uh, uh, their thought was that the best way to prevent those things was to remove the body. Uh, let's see what else here. I spend a long, a long chapter on that, chapter one, by the way. Uh, let's see. Uh, I haven't, uh, since then, haven't uh, read any uh, 
valid criticisms of the book. Uh, again, I've had almost no response. Um, people just go silent. And on, on both sides, they go silent, both camps. So it's a little uh, mysterious. Uh, I did acknowledge my partial predecessors very early in the book, too, and already in the preface. Uh, I have a long 35-page chapter on the face cloth of Jesus, which is mentioned in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 7, I believe it is, uh, the so-called sudarion, uh, and make a lot of references to the sudarium of Oviedo, which you've talked about on your show many times, probably, um, which I, I do still believe is uh, authentic as well. It was put on the head of Jesus uh, outside the tomb, not inside, but outside. Um, what else here? Uh, oh, I should mention it. The book is on Amazon now, uh, but it's priced way too high. Uh, I'm not responsible for that. Amazon's algorithms are they calculate and so on. And, and I would not get any of that price. I'll, I'll try to contact them soon. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, if anyone would like to read the preface to the book, I could send them uh, uh, a digital copy of that. Um, if you write me at uh, lokenj at hotmail.com, I'll get that to you. Uh, so now, in comparison with my book, uh, De Wesselo's The Sign, it's a very long book, 450 pages long. I've got a copy here. I'll show you one copy. Looks like that. Okay. And... Uh, he got a lot of help. Uh, he had a big publisher, a whole team of assistants, uh, editors, and it's a really a superbly well packaged. Uh, he discusses the entire history of the Turin Shroud. He also goes into depth into the artistic uh, evidence and the forensic evidence. Um, he doesn't use much Greek. Uh, and his theory, one of his... Uh, unique theories is that the body was still in the tomb when the women followers went to the tomb. <clears throat> and, uh, and then the shroud was taken from the tomb and the body was left behind. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, De Wesselo also took several years to write his book uh, and it shows it's very well written. Uh, it's, uh, excellent style and so on. Um, he doesn't mention the Sudarium of Oviedo much at all. Uh, he does speculate quite a bit about uh, the Apostle Paul and his possible role in the Shroud interpretation. Uh, what else? It's been given uh, some consideration by liberal New Testament scholars in academia, and I would say it deserves even more uh, consideration and, and attention. Uh, I hope more people will read that, uh, both uh, New Testament scholars and also people in the Shroud field. Uh, um, I first read the sign in 2019, just a few years ago. I was too busy until then, or maybe too lazy, uh, but I liked it very much. I found it excellent. <clears throat> uh, of course, it's a very familiar theory to me, so you know, there's a lot of overlap in our interpretations. Uh, in terms of my book, again, um, 
Uh, again, I, I'm not familiar with any serious criticisms of it, uh, apart from the fact that the uh, natural image formation has not been uh, reproduced in modern times. <clears throat> uh, that's a valid criticism. But again, I mentioned so few experiments have been done on the shroud since 1978. Uh, that has been uh, a factor. Uh, De Wesselo, at one point in his book, he writes that my stolen body theory is, is unnecessary. Uh, he has his own, as I mentioned just now. Um, that's a mild criticism. I don't take it as a sharp criticism, rather mild one. Uh, and I still think it's not a valid one. He also uses the term uh, body snatching at one point, which... Uh, uh, tends to make it sound a little melodramatic, like a fiction, uh, you know, a thriller, a novel. Um, in fact, however, uh, body stealing, a corpse stealing or desecrating of dead bodies has been fairly common throughout history, um, either for, <clears throat> for medical research purposes or for some political or religious claims involving uh, rivalries and political power struggles. Um, one thinks of the uh, situation in uh, Sophocles' uh, tragedy, uh, Antigone, uh, involving King Creon and the body, the corpse of uh, Polynices. Also, we can think of all the tombs of the Egyptian pharaohs, which were, of course, uh, plundered. They were raided by grave robbers, um, King Tut being almost the only exception. Um, in the book, I also explore the honorable burial given the body of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea. And I find it very revealing. And, and I pointed out that it was from the point of view of the religious authorities in Jerusalem, it was actually an offensively honorable burial, a provocatively honorable burial. <clears throat> and we don't get that view in the Gospels, but it's important to keep in mind, they would have understandably have been outraged by that honorable burial and wanted to do something about it. Uh, so let me just catch a little drink here. No problem. Let's see where somewhere around here. No worries. I've been oh, I've been making notes as you go for to ask you some probing questions when when you once you've laid out your case. So yeah, take your time. So thanks. No worries. Nice, the best drink in the world. All right, water, water. H two O, God's own recipe, right? So there you are. <laughs> Very good. So let's see. Am I lost here in my thoughts? No. Let's see. Moving on. I also explore this, the story of the tomb guards whose role <clears throat> in the uh, entombment uh, seems very suspicious to me. Uh, I ask myself, what was their real purpose? Was it really to guard the tomb? And uh, if not, what else? <clears throat> and to me, it seems to point very strongly in the direction of assisting in a body theft. I've even done on one page in my book, uh, in uh, chapter one, I did a, a demythologization, if that's the word, <laughs> of the passage which refers to 
the uh, tomb guards. Uh, it's about a paragraph long. And if you exclude, delete all of the miracles and supernatural aspect of it, you get a, quite a revealing uh, picture of what the tomb guards were actually up to. Um, or if there were no tomb guards at all, which many New Testament scholars claim, um, then it would have been all the more easy for the authorities and their henchmen, their underlings, to remove the body of Jesus. Uh, and we need to remember it, it was done at night. Whatever happened in the tomb, whatever happened, resurrection or body theft, it was done at night. There was no one there watching it, checking. So, um, Dale, you may or may not be familiar with the name of uh, Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat, right? <clears throat> You're a relative youngster, so uh, he uh, he was very much in the news back in the late 20th century. He was the leader of the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization. He died in 2004. There was a huge controversy at the time when he died, <clears throat> and the controversy was as to where his body would be buried. He personally and his followers wanted it to be buried in Jerusalem. Uh, however, and to make a shrine of it there, uh, the, the Israelis understandably did not want a big shrine to Arafat in Jerusalem. And so finally it was uh, Ramallah was chosen a smaller city. Um, but the controversy was in the news for several days and it just shows you how important that issue of the location of a tomb can be. And uh, I can see that same thing happen, happening 2,000 years ago with the case of uh, the body of Jesus. More recently, there was the case of uh, Osama bin Laden uh, taken out by a commando team about 10 years ago, I think. And what did they do with his body? They did not leave it there in Pakistan because they knew they knew that his followers would make a shrine and put the body in it, and it would be a rallying point for militant Muslims in years to come. So what did they do? They actually removed the body from that house and from Pakistan, flew it out to sea, and deposited it in, a, in an anonymous burial. So <clears throat> those two, two cases are just a, a couple of uh, many, many others that I could cite as uh, backup evidence for the body removal uh, back in the first century in Jerusalem of, of Jesus' body. So uh, let's see. Some skeptics of my stolen body theory have protested that if the Jerusalem authorities had stolen the body, or I should say taken the body of Jesus, they could have uh, produced it to <clears throat> refute the claim of Christians that uh, Jesus had been resurrected. And in my book, I show that that's rather a weak argument. Uh, they may, having done this act already, they may very possibly have destroyed the body immediately. <clears throat> it's known that uh, the authorities there in Jerusalem did resort to uh, fire or lime uh, on occasion or sometimes to destroy bodies of criminals. So that could have happened. Also simple uh, natural decay would have uh, 
obliterated the remains of Jesus within several months. And that's another factor to consider. Um, apparently in, in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, there is reference to the authorities there also simply beating, beating the Christians into submission in those early years. So they did not need to go to the, <clears throat> the length of uh, producing the body. Um, and besides have, doing so, if they possibly could have done so, it would have been an admission of their own guilt in removing the body. So that gets rather complicated, of course. <clears throat> Another little pause, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. What, what the, I, I guess I'll just, start, cause I've got a lot of questions. I'll just throw in one quick question here. If it's okay. So uh, that's one thing that I liked about your book. You went into a lot of detail as to different options as to who would have stolen the body, why you think it wouldn't be them, but it would be the Jewish authorities. Here, here's one criticism that I can, that I was, was immediate to me when I was reading your book. Sure. Um, okay. If it was the Jewish authorities, why on God's green earth would they accommodate the prior provable prophecies of Jesus and steal it on the third day? They, it seems unlikely that the Jewish authorities would s steal it to make it look like a prophecy fulfillment of Jesus. And what's your take on something like that? Yeah, right. Very good question. Very good. <clears throat> uh, and I, I actually do cover that in the book, maybe too briefly, maybe you missed it, um, but two or three spots in the book, I mentioned that. Um, and actually, uh, the fact is that although in, uh, I think it's perhaps Mark, there is a reference to uh, Jesus you know, prophesying uh, his resurrection after three days, there's no earlier mention of that until the gospels were written <clears throat> starting around the year 70, okay? In the so-called <clears throat> Q document, which uh, is not extant today, but it was determined by New Testament scholars that it did exist back in the first century. It was called Q, an abbreviation. And uh, it contains many, many sayings of Jesus and it dates or dated from the 40s and 50s of the first century, very, very early before the Gospels were written. Many of Jesus' parables are in there and the Beatitudes and so on. Uh, but in all of that material, there's no uh, mention of a resurrection of Jesus. So that's one uh, criticism of the idea, belief that he actually uh, prophesied his own resurrection. <clears throat> also in uh, the uh, first Corinthians of Paul, the letter first Corinthians chapter 15, the early verses there, he mentions that uh, the resurrection of Jesus was uh, uh, foretold, uh, but he doesn't say by Jesus himself. What he does is he said, as it was foretold in scripture, in scripture. So, and he doesn't get specific as to what he's referring to, <clears throat> but scholars in general, they've, they've um, realized that Paul was referring to things like uh, 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 Jonah surviving supposedly three days in the belly of the, the great fish, okay, the whale, uh, and, and a couple of other 
rather vague uh, references to some sort of resurrection. Um, so there's a complete lack of any uh, evidence, any claim, I should say, that Jesus prophesied his own resurrection up until the first gospel was written. That's a 40-year period. So <clears throat> that's my answer to your, your question now. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah, thanks. Uh, can, and continue on your case, and I'll ask my other questions at the end. So. Excellent. Very good. Uh, my own biggest question about uh, De Wesselo's, uh, the sign, it involves his uh, uh, treatment of the tomb of Jesus, which, as mentioned, he thinks was not empty, uh, that the body remained in it. <clears throat> and his explanation is, uh, I believe it's on page 244 of his book, uh, the women followers, when they came to the tomb, <clears throat> they saw the the stone still blocking the entrance to the tomb. And uh, de Wesselo says in a very brief sentence, he says that they, uh, they pushed it aside. All right. Now, that's quite a, a scenario. Uh, the women, we can imagine they were not very strong and to push this huge boulder aside would have been quite a task for them so i find that a rather weak uh, weak scenario to me and also he says then that they went inside they saw the shroud image when they were in the process of anointing him and then they or or possibly the disciples uh, removed the shroud and again, that claim is made in just a, a brief single sentence, uh, uh, and it's not detailed at all. And I find myself trying to envision the process of their removing the shroud from the body, uh, and I find it very difficult uh, to believe that they would have, uh, to get the bottom half of the shroud away from the body, they would literally have had to to turn the body over, you know, and, and then tug, tug the shroud out from under the body <clears throat> and yank it out. And I just can't, uh, I suppose it is possible, plausible, but to me, it seems uh, uh, a bit far-fetched. Uh, it would have been uh, uh, undignified behavior, uh, sacrilegious even. <clears throat> there was their, their, rabbi their beloved rabbi in front of them dead and his body showed all the pains of his crucifixion uh, according to this scenario and for them to have uh, done something like that uh, just because they saw a faint image on his shroud uh, seems to me uh, very very unlikely so uh, that's my criticism of, of de westlow on that point um, a couple of other points and then i'll finish up uh, Let's see. Uh, also, the timeline for such a, a major change in the story to have taken place, I find it very, very short. Uh, it must have happened, if it did happen that way, uh, within just two or three decades. Um, and many of the followers of Jesus were still alive in the 40s, in the 50s, and in the 60s. So for them to have changed their story so radically and made the uh, tomb go from uh, full uh, or, or containing 
the body of Jesus to not containing the body of Jesus, uh, being an empty tomb and uh, due to a resurrection. To me, that sounds uh, rather far-fetched. Uh, uh, for one thing, uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, he uh, knew Paul very well. Uh, I'm sorry, the Apostle Luke, he knew Paul very well in the 50s and gathered a lot of information from him about <clears throat> about the beginnings of the faith. And uh, Luke mentions uh, the empty tomb both in his gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles. So uh, all of that evidence uh, uh, supports, for me at least, it supports the uh, conclusion that there was an empty tomb. Uh, I also doubt uh, de Wesselow's suggestions that the Turin Shroud was shown widely around Palestine in public displays. Uh, he tries to explain Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians that it was uh, that 500 uh, brethren saw the risen Christ. And uh, de Wesselow thinks that the, what they saw was the uh, shroud itself in a public display and its image. Personally, I think Paul's claim was more fantasy. It really uh, wasn't, uh, it was just an exaggeration. Uh, he was writing to the Corinthians who were 800 miles away from Jerusalem and they couldn't check on his claims. So that's my take on those uh, issues. Uh, in general though, I would have to say that The Sign seems to me an excellent book uh, in most regards and I would highly recommend it. So. All right. Awesome. So, all right. So that's very interesting then as a theory. Um, it, it's something that I, I think is kind of unique to you and Dueslo, it's, it's definitely not a mainstream skeptical theory um, that's, that's said all the time, you know, the resurrection, how do we explain it? They, the appearances where the shroud, seeing the shroud images and, and that sort of thing. So, Okay, well, one thing I want to, a few questions I want to ask you, and we do have a couple of audience questions on this. First first question for you is kind of supportive of your notion that there is, in fact, an empty tomb. But I'm just wondering, uh, you know N.T. Wright's sort of argumentation that the appearances plus the empty tomb, were both both those elements were necessary in order to give rise to the resurrection belief. Um, I know that you're familiar with N.T. Wright from your book and stuff, but what do you make of N.T. Wright's argument? It, I know it's something that Hugh Ferry, for example, even as a Shroud skeptic, has paid homage to in, in arguing for the resurrection. Do you, do you think that's a good reason to believe that there must have been an empty tomb as well? Uh, you know, Dale, I didn't quite uh, follow everything you said. <clears throat> Were you using the appearances as uh, evidence for the resurrection? Uh, um, so N.T. Wright, he, he argues, how do we explain resurrection belief in the early church? And he would say, well, you, the appearances and the empty tomb, you need both of those. If you just had the appearances, it wouldn't give rise to the resurrection. If you just had an empty tomb, but no appearances, that wouldn't give rise. So I just wanted to know, yeah, what do you make of that? Yes, I, I would agree with that too. Yeah, I think uh, if... Uh... <clears throat> If there was no empty tomb, you just had the appearance stories that wouldn't be strong enough in itself. And of course, just an empty tomb, an empty tomb alone <clears throat> would point actually more than anything toward a body theft. So 
uh, that wouldn't suffice. But when you started to have the appearance stories uh, uh, crop up, then uh, the two the two factors together they really uh, created a a certain dynamic and the resurrection belief then took off. It took off. In the early years, it appears that <clears throat> in the letters, there are 21 letters in the New Testament epistles, about half of them uh, do not even mention the uh, resurrection of Jesus. Uh, uh, they deal with other matters entirely. And of the other half that do, uh, almost always what they referred to is a resurrection up to the right hand of God, okay? And scholars have noticed for decades now, maybe a century or more, that it, it's described as a, or I should say it's declared as a, an ascension to God, the Father, and not described as an earthly resurrection walking and talking and eating with the disciples, that all comes later. Um, in Paul's 1 Corinthians letter, chapter 15, there is, uh, the, I believe it's the one and only reference in the all 21 epistles of the New Testament to the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. But that's all it says is just he appeared. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared and so on. So to me, it's rather a vague, uh, it's a vague uh, declaration of his uh, resurrection, not at all like the, the uh, later stories. Uh, and of course, in every legend, there are uh, additions made in time and things get more vivid and they change and so on. So that's my understanding. I hope that answered your question. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was good. I just wanted to get your take. So, all right, cool. Um, <laughs> one thing um, I just wanted to follow up on, on the, the question I asked you and you, you sort of gave your answer regarding this, re the resurrection prediction. Um, no, one, I'm just, uh, are you familiar with Mike Lacona, a biblical scholar who's kind of He's given six independent arguments that prove Jesus did historically predict the resurrection. Are, are you familiar with those arguments I, at all? Or? I know his name, uh, and I may have read <clears throat> uh, some of his writings back a long time ago, back uh, 17, 18 years ago. Uh, but I'm, I've forgotten them if I did, did read them. Uh, but go ahead, if you like. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just give some examples. So, for example, he'll, he'll apply the criteria of authenticity, right? So, you know, there's one where it's a prediction of Jesus' uh, death and, and vindication or resurrection, where he's talking to the apostle uh, Peter. And, you know, first he he says, who, are, who do you think I am? And then, okay, he answers rightly and he uh, uh, says, good job. And then... Yeah, go, ahead. go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, but then he scolds Peter. So, uh, because Peter says something wrong when he finds when he makes this prediction and stuff like that. Surely that won't happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. So this fulfills the criterion of embarrassment. And this is one of the reasons Mike Lacona will go, well, this little kerygma is probably historical. Jesus probably actually said this. Uh, so that's just an example. But yeah, if you're if you're not familiar with the argument um, arguments, but do you think that, yeah, what's your what's your case about 
historians trying to say there are, there are certain predictions we we can have reasons to believe are historical and in general. Right. I'd, I'd really have to investigate it, uh, look at those texts and also see what uh, New Testament scholars have written about them. Um, one thing that occurs to me uh, just off the top of my head is <clears throat> that that passage is in one of the Gospels, right? It's in Mark or Matthew. Uh, yeah. And again, uh, the Gospels are a combination of history and fiction, uh, both. And uh, they were written, uh, began to be written down uh, some 40 years after the death of Jesus. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the order was uh, probably, scholars think probably it was Mark first, followed by Matthew, followed by Luke, followed by John, little 10-year intervals between them, roughly. Uh, so I just don't know how uh, valid that evidence taken from one of the Gospels would be uh, to, uh, to the question of, of Jesus having predicted his own resurrection. Uh, that's my... The, just just a quick follow-up and a general question that I because your one of your areas of expertise is in history. So do you do you think what certain his, scholars in historiography call the criteria of authenticity, they they are valid in terms of allowing us to say this part of a text probably is historical versus other parts we don't know? Or like do you see any role for the criteria of authenticity to play a role or uh, I haven't I have not studied that uh, formally, but uh, okay. uh, I mean, any ancient text is obviously suspect for uh, a number of reasons, and, and you have to sift very carefully words and sentences that may be true and those which are uh, dubious, very questionable. So, gotcha. Cool. All right. Cool. So kind of moving on, um, another question about the empty tomb. This this will be the last one on the empty tomb. Um, but I just wanted to, so I found it interesting. You you did kind of work with the, the story of the guard. Um, a lot of skeptics would just kind of dismiss that part as, as a legend, but you go with it. And um, one thing I wanted to ask about is, okay, if, if the Jewish authorities and, and the temple guard were the ones responsible for stealing the body what about the roman seal and the roman involvement uh because they would have been in trouble with the romans so obviously you, you would have to say the romans were in on this as well otherwise the the jewish authorities would be in trouble for breaking that that seal so what's your take on something like that right good very good question uh, <clears throat> and i do cover that maybe too briefly in the book uh my uh theory is that it was uh it could have been either party to organize the removal of Jesus' body from the tomb. Um, I tend to think that the uh, religious authorities were the ones who did it uh, for the most part, but perhaps with the, uh, what's the word, compliance of the Roman authorities. In other words, <clears throat> they informed the Romans what they were going to do, and the Romans said, okay, that sounds fine. We understand your reasons go ahead with it. Okay. So there, there may have been uh, uh, cooperation there, uh, collaboration. Uh, it's possible, it's possible too, that uh, the Romans alone did it. They, having held power, they were the major power there in the city. 
uh, that they performed the removal. It's also possible that the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, uh, did it alone. I, I just don't know. So I, I keep that question open. Uh, it's not really crucial. Uh, the other evidence for such a removal uh, seems uh, stronger than than trying to pinpoint exactly who did it. You know, you've got the the nighttime uh, setting or timing of the uh, removal. The missing stone or the stone moved to one side, which is very suspicious, uh, and and so on. Other points as well. Uh, and that that uh, offensively honorable burial of uh, the body by Joseph of Arimathea, I can see that that would uh, really have uh, outraged the authorities there. Uh. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, all right, so just a couple last questions from me, and then sure. we do have some audience questions as well. So, um, okay, so kind of turning, you you mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, so that's something I'm glad about. It's it's something. Yeah, oh, but, uh, I mentioned what? Uh, First uh, Corinthians fifteen. Yes, yes. And as you know, so this is this is not just Paul writing this. This is a a creed that even uh, atheist biblical scholars will admit go back within months to uh, maybe at three years or something after the events of the resurrection. So, um, I, I don't want to get too specific and stuff, but there there have been arguments by uh, various biblical scholars that from that creed we. It, it's not as vague in terms of the appearances. Sure, it doesn't give us details about touching or eating, but we can tell that it, it's speaking of a bodily appearance um, from that creed. That's what it's talking about. So it's not some ghost-like appearance or, you know, an ascension. So do you think that uh, the creed is useful in any way in terms of specifying and proving that well, it's, maybe the shroud wouldn't work. It's talking about a bodily resurrection, and they're seeing this body kind of, you know, it goes to sleep, and then it arises up uh, kind of thing. So it's talking about the body. Images on on a shroud wouldn't qualify. Yeah, what, what's your take on that? Well, uh, I understand your point uh, and the point of the scholars that you are, are citing. Uh but to me, uh, that section of First Corinthians, uh, it's again, it just remains very vague. Uh, the word used repeatedly, it's only one word. It's almost, uh, in a way, it's almost monotonous. Uh, Jesus appeared and he appeared and he appeared and he appeared. Uh, I think four or five times it's, it's said, uh, and it, there's just a, a total lack of any other um, description of, you know, movement, walking and talking. Uh, uh, the same word, uh, I believe, uh, in terms of Greek grammar, it can also be understood as uh, he was seen. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a very interesting uh, nuance there. It's not just that he did the appearing, but that he, as an object, was seen by these people, Peter and the Twelve and so on. Uh, and of course, that gets very, very, very close to the shroud image. Uh, awesome. So. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, last question for me on this. 
and it's again related to the appearances but uh when i was reading your book and maybe i missed it again um but when i when i was reading i didn't see anything in your book about this so there, there's this notion okay what is it there are qualifying criteria to be an apostle right you had to have seen the risen jesus you had to have had this appearance this was one of the requirements now if if your theory is true that okay the resurrection appearances are explained by seeing the shroud um why did the resurrection appearances ever stop then like what why did it stop after paul uh shouldn't they have kept showing the shroud like what accounts for that decisive stop after paul jesus stopped appearing people see him in visions but they never see have an appearance of jesus again yeah, uh, that's a question I've, I've never really asked myself. I think uh, I don't know why they would have stopped. Uh, of course, the secrecy factor. Um, I believe that uh, you know it was a dangerous thing to show too many people the shroud image. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, loose lips sink ships, as they say in wartime. And uh, if if you start talking around the fact of this image you're going to get people uh being too curious about it and wanting to see it people who really shouldn't be looking at it and before you know it they're going to turn around and go to the authorities and the authorities are going to come looking for it and they're going to confiscate it and very possibly destroy it so uh that would be one reason for uh the the sightings uh, and resurrection appearances to sort of uh, die out. Also, you know, there, uh, there just weren't, uh, not, there's not much to go on. Uh, since, in my view, again, in my view, since there was no actual resurrection, th these stories couldn't continue. You know, there, you know, Jesus simply wasn't around to be reported on by hundreds and hundreds of people. So I should say too, the, the resurrection appearances, and I may make this point in the book, uh, they're almost all, if not all, uh, they're rather uh, subdued and secretive. Uh, you don't have any case of him uh, walking, striding up on the walls of Jerusalem or you know, up, out in public among the uh, populace there. Uh, they're all rather secretive. And, and that, again, indicates to me that there's something uh, unusual going on. And it's consistent with uh, private showings of the shroud <clears throat> in the upper room, for example. In Luke and John, you have this upper room scene where he appears to them. And his words are, are very simple. It's just, I believe, he says peace and then a few other words. To me, that's very consistent with a showing of the shroud in an upper room. Two of the disciples would have held it up uh, vertically and the others would have beheld this, this wonderful visionary experience of their, of their dear rabbi who who was gone now, and uh, it would have been just amazingly inspiring, so. Okay, well, uh, I know I promised that was my last question, but uh, this is the last one, if you don't mind, but that, that, 
that raises a, a very interesting issue. This was another thing I was thinking about as I was reading your book and stuff like that. But okay, again, pretending your theory is true that the shroud images equal the appearances and these private showings, how that doesn't seem likely to convince people like Paul or James who were skeptics at the time. I mean, just seeing the shroud images, I, it, you've seen them. It doesn't convince you or, or many skeptics have seen the images. So how would you account for people who were skeptics or, or in Paul's case, even anti-Christianity, anti-Jesus at the time? Uh, why would they convert just off seeing shroud images? Right. Uh, I don't really go into that question much in the book. I, I limit my focus almost entirely to the three days of the Easter weekend, the first Easter weekend. And of course, Paul came into the scene uh, some years after that. Uh, I don't believe he converted until maybe three years, two or three years after the crucifixion. Uh, his case, it, and I don't necessarily think that he knew about the shroud. Um, he may have learned at some point in his career. He, he was uh, martyred when in the mid-50s. Um, but it's just not certain where the shroud was during those years. And if he saw it, um, he may have heard about it, uh, but not been shown the shroud because he was always this, uh, you know, former enemy. And a lot of people may have had uh, some reservations about him. So maybe they didn't show it to him. Or if he saw it, maybe they didn't show the image on it for some reason. They just wanted to keep that part secret. Uh, it's all very, very speculative when it comes to Paul. So I veered away from that subject in my book. Um, I do think uh, that the main factor in his conversion uh, was not actually the shroud image, um, but rather his guilt. Uh, a lot of people switch sides either politically or in religious terms. They, they go from being entrenched on one side uh, to a, a uh, complete opposite uh, stance uh, because of some experience they have, a uh, uh, conversion experience. It goes both ways. Former liberals become conservatives and vice versa. And we know many examples. So, so that uh, explains, I believe, Paul's case. I think it was more of an emotional, uh, guilt-ridden guilt conversion. Uh, in the case of James, he was, <clears throat> he was uh, apparently the brother of Jesus. So he had a, a family um, uh, affection and uh, affiliation there, which may have played a, a big role in his joining the movement. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, James was at first somewhat uh, standoffish toward Jesus, but then he came and joined the movement, became the first bishop of uh, Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, though, the epistle of James in the New Testament, <clears throat> which uh, it's not certain, it, it may very well have been written by him, um, or by him with the help of a polished writer who helped him with his Greek, or it may have been written by his immediate followers um, using his ideas, his ideas. And what it expresses very strongly is the uh, original Jewish Christianity, the form of, of Jewish Christianity before 
uh, Paul uh, took it out to the Gentiles. <clears throat> and uh, that whole epistle of James is very concerned with ethical matters. <coughs> Excuse me. Ethical questions and, and uh, good behavior and, and uh, this and that. He doesn't uh, actually um, mention Jesus more than uh, once or twice. And he does not mention the resurrection either. So, and that's uh, uh, rather revealing to my to my mind. So that's my take on those two examples. Um, they are good examples for you to raise in terms of um, you know counter examples to my my uh, my own evidence. But uh, I believe that I can explain them in that way. Awesome. All right. Cool. So uh, I'm going to go to a few audience questions. So I'll, I'll start with the vulture here. This. This is kind of a general question. Obviously, you are an agnostic, right? So he's saying, uh, look, in all politeness, uh, did you, John, say earlier that supernatural is not a viable explanation? And this could apply whether it's the shroud or to Jesus' resurrection in general. Um, yeah, if so, why did you say that? Right. <clears throat> well, I would say uh, at this point, you know, we uh, if I am going to claim that other people uh, are uh, what they are thinking fantasies, then I have to recognize that I, I myself may be uh, believing fantasies too. So <clears throat> so to that extent I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the uh, your, your commenter here. Um, you know I could be fantasizing my, naturalistic explanation as well. So um, I'm not a doctrinaire about my, uh, about a re rejection of the supernatural. So that's a conditional uh, uh, stance. I must say though, uh, let's see, in terms of the Turin shroud itself, leaving aside, well, I think I did, I did mention quite a few pieces of evidence <clears throat> to doubt the uh, resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there's no prophecy of it in the Q document. The letters, the early letters in the um, uh, New Testament, only half of them mention a resurrection, and it's always a, a declaration. It's not a description of it. So other things too. There's even a, a few passages in Matthew 28, for example, <clears throat> where Jesus, uh, in the story, he's resurrected, he's on the mountain, um, but Matthew says, but many doubted, or but some doubted. So here you have an admission by a gospel writer that the resurrected Jesus himself could not persuade some, and you might read even many of the followers that uh, he was actually there. So to me, that's another cause for doubt. Uh, let me turn, though, to the Turin Shroud evidence itself. Uh, one thing, uh, just as you as you answer that, one thing that I could add to this that might help it. Um, what what would it take for you to to finally go? Yeah, actually, I do think that it was supernaturally uh, explained, kind of thing. Like, yeah, maybe add that into your answer if you don't mind. Yeah. Do you mean the resurrection or the the authenticity of the shroud? Either or. Yeah. Or the uh, the uh, supernatural formation of the shroud image. Yeah, you're, so you're on. You're moving on to the shroud. So let's let's stick with the shroud. What what would it take for you to be convinced? Uh, that may that 
an excellent question. Kind of leads into um, what I was about to say. Uh, uh, I'll have to list the the negative points to begin with. Okay, um, to begin with, the body is actually dead. Okay, the body of Jesus, as shown on the shroud, it's dead. There is no sign of a resurrection. It's uh, the eyes are not open. Although we only really know that since the 1898 photographs by Secondo Pia, uh, which showed that his eyes were closed until that time for all of the preceding centuries, the vague uh, shadowy image that was on the shroud, it actually looked like the eyes were open. So uh, that gave uh, people the impression that it was a, uh, resurrected Jesus. Uh, uh, also, the body, it's double-imaged, uh, which is rather odd. If it were, to me at least, uh, if it were a supernatural product, I don't see any reason why a god would uh, necessarily have produced a double image of the body. I would think that a, a frontal image alone would suffice to impress uh, the followers with uh, a resurrection, but instead you have this weird uh, and even awkward, uh, when you look at the shroud on the, uh, uh, the image, when you look at the image on the shroud, you've got these two images, a double image. It's really redundant in a way, you know, it clutters up, if I may say, sorry mm -hmm. to say it, but it actually sort of clutters up the image. It diminishes the frontal image by showing the back image. So, now, in the world of physics, however, uh, many of the forces and effects in physics uh, you know, work in a uh, vertical way, a vertical direction. Uh, you yourself, I believe, earlier you mentioned the word collimation. Um, that's been very uh, frequently used by uh, scientists in the shroud field. Uh, so, uh, and those are natural forces. So, again, the double image, to me at least, it speaks more for a, a natural formation. Um, the body we mentioned before, it's naked. Uh, again, if it were miraculous, the image were miraculous, I, I just don't see any reason why the body would be depicted naked. <clears throat> and that factor appears to have been one reason why the shroud was kept uh, so secret for so many centuries. Uh, it wasn't even known. There were just a few references to the body being naked uh, around the year 1000. So yeah, in all the earlier time, it wasn't referred to. Um, obviously, it was a uh, not a welcome uh, uh, site in uh, ancient Jewish society. Um, also, I mentioned the factor of the distortions. There are some minor, maybe not major, but minor distortions on the shroud image. If it were a miracle, I would expect, uh, at least probably, that uh, the image would be a perfect one, and it's not quite perfect. So, uh, Also, one very interesting point I've made in the past uh, is that it's not, uh, uh, how should I say this, the actual image formation process, whatever it was, is not what impresses people about the shroud image. What impresses everyone, mostly at least, when we look at it, it's the composure of 
Jesus. He looks very serene and uh, a little ghostly and glowing with his hazy outline. And if he had been depicted in another posture, say a tortured posture, as you see in paintings of, uh, say, the recumbent Christ, and many paintings of the so-called recumbent Christ, you can find them on Google Images. And, you know, in those, his head is often twisted to one side. His One of his arms might be lying, uh, you know, uh, stretched out. So he's in these awkward-looking postures. If the shroud had shown those kind of uh, postures of Jesus, uh, it would not be as revered as it is today. And people, I believe, would tend to think more that it was a, a natural formation. The image was formed naturally. But instead, we have this wonderfully composed and serene uh, uh, posture of Jesus. His head is straightforward. Uh, he looks uh, like he has conquered death really conquer death. Um, so that's another another uh, factor. Um, also, the, the Catholic Church was intimately involved in the dating in 1988 uh, and made an enormous number of mistakes, uh, sad to say. They made an enormous number of mistakes, uh, and uh, many of us believe that the dating was a, a misdating. <clears throat> so I find it uh, ironic if if the shroud was actually a supernatural creation and of all people, of all people, the Catholic church was responsible for messing things up so badly. Uh, somehow I, I wonder if a God would actually allow, allow that permit that to happen. So. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, all right. So the next question is from Mr. Jetty and it's, Kind of going back to um, the examples of, of the stolen body, right? So he's he's saying, look, uh, all of the examples that you gave there, John, are of dishonorable men and thieves opening up graves. That doesn't really fit the profile of the disciples. Now, obviously, your theory is that the authorities stole it. So let's plug in the authorities there instead. And I think his question still works. You know, why why on why would Caiaphas and the authorities defile themselves by stealing? A human body. Uh, I mean, surely their word alone could have been good enough. I mean, they could have just lied or something like that, and or well, something. Could you repeat the last sentence or two, Dale? Yeah. Uh, oh, just to simplify it, like, what? Why on earth would uh, the Jewish authorities defile themselves by getting wrapped up in stealing a corpse and making themselves unclean and all that? Right. Yeah. Good question. Uh, let me uh, briefly address the uh, man who uh, asked the question. Um, and as you said, I, I don't uh, uh, don't pinpoint the disciples as being the ones. Uh, I long ago eliminated the disciples uh, as the uh, people who removed the body. They were uh, obviously uh, very, very fearful for their lives in those few days, and they would not have undertaken such an enterprise as to try to uh, remove the body for fear that they themselves might have been um, uh, crucified or, you know, uh, tortured, severely punished. So, uh, so really, uh, it comes down and it was not uh, common grave robbers either, just people out for valuables. And it was not any animals that removed the body. So when you eliminate those parties, 
uh, what remains in the end is the authorities. And it's a very, uh, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, I read dozens of books 20 years ago, uh, trying to figure out the reasoning of New Testament scholars. And virtually nobody ever proposed the authorities as the ones to uh, remove the body, and I just could not understand it. To me, it made perfect sense. <clears throat> uh, the authorities, again, they were outraged in in this scenario, my scenario. They were outraged by the honorable burial of this uh, blasphemer, this uh, rebel, uh, Jesus, Yeshua, uh, and not only the honorable burial, but it was right outside the city walls. So it was very close to holy Jerusalem. Uh, so I can see very well uh, them organizing it. Uh, you mentioned Caiaphas uh, possibly being personally involved. I don't uh, uh, envision that at all. I think that henchmen, underlings must have done the dirty work, you know gone into the uh, the tomb <clears throat> late at night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., whenever, um, removed the body. And by the way, they would not have uh, uh, taken the shroud with them, uh, which is why the shroud was then found in the tomb, as related in the Gospels of Luke and John. Um, they would not have taken the shroud because it was very flimsy. It was not a, a suitable uh, container for carrying the body in uh, extremely thin um very narrow just what three feet one meter uh wide and uh if they had tried to carry the body the body would have fallen out <clears throat> and if they had tried to keep the the shroud with the body they would could have tripped over it you know how how that works with bed sheets and all they, it was awkward so they just left it there where it was and they undoubtedly if they did this if this scenario is, is correct, they would have had uh, some container with them already, mm -hmm. uh, a, a large leather sack, uh, a large carpet to roll it up in, something of that sort. So I hope that, hope that answers the questions. All right, awesome. All right, so the next one comes from Mr. Trousers, and he, he says, so I'll, I'll try to change it up a bit, but the Jews had crucified in order to kill off Jesus' new movement. Do you not think that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, um, we would never have even heard of him as his disciples would have melted away? So I, I think just to kind of add here, look, in, in Jewish history, there have been a lot of false Jewish messiahs who, once they got killed, uh, no, their followers didn't proclaim the resurrection. And presumably those guys would have been buried in shrouds. What If it was naturally explained, maybe that why didn't they keep the images? Why is Jesus so unique? that only he had the circumstances that led to resurrection belief and none of the other Jewish Messiah claimants had this. Right. Good question. Uh, let's see. I'm not quite sure I understand the, uh, the person who wrote this message. It's a little awkward, uh, awkwardly phrased for me, but uh, uh, basically, well, he was a, a really remarkable man. There's no doubt about that at all. And uh, so uh, Aside from the uh, factor of the shroud image, the astonishing factor there, he also had a charismatic power and a deep, deep ethical concern 
uh, which again, it shows so clearly in the epistle of James. If you read the epistle of James, and that concern uh, must have kept his followers uh, together and uh, uh, what just kept them going for some years. So I don't claim that uh, the shroud image was the only factor in the survival of uh, early Christianity. Uh, his personality was a very strong one, and his ideals were uh, also strong. Anyone can read the Epistle of James and, and find them there. So, All right. Awesome. All right, cool. So last but not least, the last audience question, and I think you'll like this one. It's nice and simple. But on the Shroud of Turin, uh, how on earth do you explain the carbon-14 dating results? If you, What you're saying is right, and this... The shroud goes back to Jesus and explains the resurrection. The, it was carbon dated to the medieval period. How, how do you explain that on your end, John? Right. <clears throat> you know, I again, I'm not a scientist. Uh, <clears throat> I've read a lot about the C14 test results, uh, but uh, I just really can't uh, uh, pretend to make uh, any uh, valid statements on, on that issue. I, I don't tend to believe that they are not correct and probably a combination of uh what's the word uh, uh, contamination of some kind which skewed the results and then the people who ran the experiments the carbon 14 experiments they were looking to what's the word cut edges they wanted to simplify their results so it was a combination of the actual material <clears throat> that was tested and their own uh interest uh, and let's be honest it was rather uh, self-interest they wanted to make big names for themselves in the carbon testing field so uh, those two factors combining together uh, resulted in misdating. All right. Awesome. So, yeah, that's it for the audience questions. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on. I hope that um, you felt you had your fair say um, in presenting this unique theory. Yes, very much, Dale. Again, and I appreciate your patience with such a one as me. Uh, I know we are on different sides in this issue but uh, you've been uh, again once again a great and gracious host so thank you no problem my my pleasure I, I think that it's really important to engage with people with who we disagree with and stuff and like i said you, yours is a theory i i watch all the resurrection debates atheists versus christians it, this is something that is not normally presented in in resurrection debates so i think it was important to get it out there and whether I agree with it or not, uh, have people consider the, the merits of the case. So, yeah. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, well that's it. Uh, I think I've covered everything just so the audience knows. So tomorrow, uh, I actually have two shows, but Shroud related for you guys. Uh, I have a panel review show and we're going to be having Larry Stolly on, who's a pro Shroud expert, arguing based, he, he says that there are four texts in the New Testament that he says are hidden references to the Shroud of Turin. Uh, I, we kind of went over that with John a little bit on one of them, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Um, but we're also bringing on secular biblical scholars, nothing to do with the Shroud in general, but Dr. Daryl Bach, he'll be arguing the Shroud skeptics case. So Hugh, get, Hugh gets a break 
as the shroud skeptic on this one. And uh, Ben Witherington, um, he is pro shroud in general, but I don't know his take on the question of does he think the New Testament actually speaks about the shroud. So it'll be an interesting little discussion to find out if there are four references to the shroud in the New Testament or not. So yeah, uh, thanks everybody again and have a great week. Thank you. All right, there you go. 